Welcome to episode three of the Ryan Reef podcast. I talked to Joel of Future Folklore, which is a project exploring UAPs, also known as unidentified aerial phenomena. I know this topic can be a bit taboo, but there's been a recent resurgence in the idea of alien life, which I find interesting. I was originally drawn to Joel's project because I think it's pushing the boundaries of DSI, also known as decentralized science, which is an emerging field that I'll discuss in future episodes. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for joining me today. Um, yeah, to, to get started, maybe you can uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into crypto and um, the project you're working on. Yeah, thanks. Um, so my name is Joel, and um, I recently started a project that's called uh, Future Folklore, and it is sort of a blend of uh, crypto, blockchain technologies that are, um, you know, enabling different models of ownership and collaboration, and, you know, it, it's really a, a science effort. So it's part of this decentralized or DSI um, movement. And... Um, you know, I, I guess I got into the crypto world through a lot of the craze of uh, early 2021. And I was really taken just by how a lot of artists were finding a new home and new communities and new recognition and buyer communities. So really for me, the door in was was the arts. And um, for several years, I've, I've really had a passion for um, supporting artists and I gather artists up in my neighborhood in New York um, periodically. And so, yeah, I would say I was just super encouraged by the, um, the new foothold that they found. You know, some were finding, you know, financial livelihoods for the very first time. So um, anyway, yeah, long story short, uh, also learned that there were a number of, of science efforts that were taking advantage of this, this really movement. You know, it's a I suppose as much a uh, an ethos of a philosophy as it is a set of emerging technologies. So, yeah, yeah, it's been really interesting to see everything just kind of popping up, and then obviously uh, the market takes a turn and, and things cool down a bit. But mm -hmm. um, you know, with with time, I think a, a lot of interesting things are going to happen. And you know, I stumbled upon your project, which I think has a really interesting and amazing <laughs> name, by the way. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell a little bit about kind of your, your vision for what you're working on. Yeah, sure. And, you know, it, it, it really sparked, um, well, several months ago, <clears throat> sometime first quarter, I suppose, of this year, which, um, you know, it's not, not the ideal time to start a project in, um, the web three world, <laughs> you know, there, there was not the promise of, um, quick sales of like a token offering governance token or anything like that. And so, yeah, it really was a, a time where the idea itself had to be tractable. You know, it wasn't just, um, there weren't that many other motives other than, wow, I really do think that this research question, these, these inquiries could find a home in the design movement. And so, yeah, future folklore is in a nutshell, um, a emerging, funding ecosystem for material science and speculative technology surrounding unidentified aerial phenomena, um, otherwise known as UFOs, just say it. 
So yeah, kudos for uh, even like entertaining this <laughs> subject matter. Um, just yesterday, actually, uh, Congress released a uh, bill that's not finally passed yet, but they're now calling these phenomena unidentified anomalous phenomena. So interesting development there. Um, yeah, the name Future Folklore takes uh, its inspiration from a book by a religious studies professor at Rice University named Jeffrey Kripal from his book um, Authors of the Impossible, um, a section he, he devotes in that book to a longtime researcher in this space, uh, among other hats he wears, named Jacques Vallée. And he talked about um, the future technology of folklore. So I borrowed a couple words from that uh, part of the book, and, and, and there we have it. So, yeah, I'd love to say more, but that's, that's the genesis of it in a nutshell. Yeah, so I, I think this is really interesting because, in my mind, DSI is obviously very new, mm -hmm. but it's going to you know, there, there's going to be people that are going to sort of shape what DSI is. And I think that if it can sort of push the traditional boundaries, if you will, of what scientists get to work on mm -hmm. or, you know, what's uh, kosher, so to speak, uh, I think that's um, something that people should work towards. And that's kind of what mm -hmm. attracted me to your your project. And I, I feel like there's something that's happened. You know, I don't know the exact timeline, but in the past few years, um, the ideas, you know, maybe, you know, go back a little further, say, mm -hmm. hey, 10 years or more, people talking about UFOs, a lot of the scientific community kind of um, didn't pay attention to it or, or disregarded it. Um, obviously, there's always been outliers, but now, you know, again, there's some new terminology that's floating around. Mm -hmm. you know, the, the UAP um, and the like. How how have you seen this sort of change over time? And, and what do you think sparked that change? Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, uh, I think of what that, that same author, Jeffrey Kripal, says um, about this whole topic. You know, he's a religious studies professor, so he too is interested in this. And uh, he says to study the UFO phenomenon adequately is an actual fact to study much, pretty much everything. And so it, it is this sort of sprawling topic and you can find any, any manner of individual personality type, temperament, professional, technical background, curious about it. Um, but I would say in the last five years or so, um, there was sort of a bombshell a New York Times front page New York Times story that came out in December of 2017 that broke the story of a somewhat covert um, research uh, team in the Pentagon that was collecting uh, stories, especially of, of military personnel, notably pilots, about things that they were seeing. And, you know, the patterns were emerging. And um, the topic was starting to get taken more seriously. And so when that story broke... You know, it was, a, it, was a, it was a combination of things. It was who was talking about it. It was the, the, the media um, that was publishing talking about it. You know, this passed through the New York Times editorial process, right? Um, it was political leaders like uh, Harry Reid, who was the one who got this thing funded. <laughs> you know, it, I think it was the network of, you know, media, um, high-quality witnesses like these uh, Air Force, especially Navy pilots that were coming forward, that were being put on the record in these stories. 
and it was in the Times, and all these things combined, I think, started to um, make this feel more serious, make it feel like um, there's something to this. It's not just attributed to attributable to um, wishful thinking or airborne clutter or meteorites or weather balloons. You know, those things are all possible, and those things are all, you know, in the messy data, frankly. But yeah, I think it was five years ago or so when that story broke that really kind of opened this up to um, to real serious inquiry. Not that serious inquiry wasn't happening before, but it, it started to turn the temperature down on the stigma, I think. Yeah, I remember very yeah. clearly when that story came out. I just, <laughs> I was curious at the time, uh, as many, I think, are. Didn't share my curiosity with you know many friends or acquaintances, but... I was really, I was really shocked when that story came out. And you know, currently there, there's a number of um, organizations that are sort of exploring this whole mm-hmm. field. Um, there's people like Avi Loeb, who obviously have the traditional credentials, sort of weighing into this space. I was wondering if yeah. you could talk a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm learning more and more just what the the research ecosystem is. Um, I think more and more are entering it and or disclosing that they, they were already involved. Yeah, so Avi Loeb recently started what they call the Galileo Project out of Harvard. And um, it's a bona fide research effort and team, and, and they're studying things like interstellar objects like Oumuamua that I, I just heard departed from our solar system. Just a very strange object that was um, the first or one of the first interstellar objects to be confirmed. But they're also trying to capture imagery of UAP, of these uh, unidentified craft um, in Earth's atmosphere, in you know near Earth orbit, thereabouts. And um, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty astonishing. They have a number of postdoc positions, so you can get a postdoc position at Harvard, basically studying the possibility of capturing UFO imagery, or, or studying interstellar objects that may have you know artificial technological origins. So it's pretty astounding. Yeah, so um, the Galileo Project is one pretty big research effort in this you know, past five years of, of change. Yeah, it's, it's quite the stark difference from, from a few years back, um, seeing the possibilities mm-hmm. um, of, of research. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the sort of data um, that is trying to be collected and how you think about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so a lot of a lot of research efforts are focused on um, imagery, and what really I, I didn't really mention this before. What really made the New York Times stories um, make a huge splash uh, several years ago was that they came with videos. You know, videos obviously can go viral in the ways that long form journalism can't. And you know, the videos themselves there were there were a few of them shot by uh, Navy pilots. They don't prove you know, that these were indeed exotic, you know, um, non-human craft. They don't, they don't prove on their own anything. They were anomalous, and at the time at least, were said to be unidentified by Pentagon. Um, but yeah, that's, that's all to say that imagery is, is a huge um, research area. Galileo Project is installing um, high-definition telescopes to capture imagery, one of which is going to be, I think, on the the grounds of the Harvard uh, Observatory. Future folklore, though, is 
more focused on uh, the materials that have been associated with these um, these sightings, and and people often think, "What you got to be kidding me?" There's there's actually material that <laughs> is associated with these things. Um, it doesn't sound possible. It doesn't sound credible. Um, I wonder if I could just tell the story of one or two. That might help to kind of flesh out what this really means. Is that is that all right? Please, that would be great. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Yeah. So you know, I'm. There's probably more to say. I'm not you know, necessarily uh, an expert or I'm not the first-hand researcher on these cases, but just a couple well-known ones in the sort of history. In Council Bluffs in Iowa in 1977, um, there were witnesses in a park, multiple groups of witnesses actually, in or around a park that saw a bright flash, uh, flames that were reaching 8 to 10 feet high, and what some described as a red luminous mass falling to the earth. So think a big chunk of molten metal falling uh, to the earth. And it was described as glowing red-orange. Uh, it ignited the grass. It was sort of boiling over the area where it fell, and it was about four, to, uh, four by six feet. Some also witnessed a round hovering object with red blinking lights around the periphery. Uh, the material was molten. It was warm to the touch for hours, and... It was also super, super cold outside. So this was like really hot when it, when it was ejected or whatever, and then as it was on the ground. And again, it was described as sort of running, boiling over. And um, this was a very public site. It was you know, not the place that one would imagine you know, some stranger would dump like a ton of molten metal. <laughs> and you know, if you really sort of put yourself in that context, it, it is so bizarre. And so, you know, the material has been analyzed over the years, and um, recently uh, a research effort was undertaken, and, and the results were published in a leading aerospace journal by um, Gary Nolan of Stanford. He's, he's, you know, mostly known for his biology or biotech work. Uh, Jacques Vallée, who's a, a longtime researcher in this, in this world, and, and some others. And, you know, they found that the material is mostly aluminum, silicon, iron, magnesium. One curiosity about the material is that it was um, inhomogeneous, so incompletely mixed across the totality of the material that they have, and they just don't know why. You know, does that prove it comes from Alpha Centauri? No. <laughs> um, but the whole package is what's important. You know, it's not just, oh my gosh, there's molten metal on the ground, or it's not just, oh, it's, it's not mixed thoroughly. Like those in and of themselves are odd or curious or why would you do that? But it's the whole picture. It's multiple independent witness testimonies, people who didn't know each other, who independently saw and testified to the same thing and who have, you know, no motives to fabricate such a bizarre story. So that is, <clears throat> that's one. I can tell one more if that's all right. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Um, so there's a well-known case from <clears throat> Brazil, from Ubatuba, Brazil, in um, 1957. And uh, I'll just read an excerpt from a, a recent journal article in the Journal of Scientific Exploration that kind of tells the story. Uh, they say the Ubatuba sample originated in Brazil in, the, in 1957. It was first mentioned in a newspaper um, in September of that year with the title, A Fragment from a Flying Disc. And pieces of the supposed flying disc were provided to the newspaper by a subscriber whose name was illegible, they say, but wrote in a very educated manner. The subscriber claimed that 
he had been fishing near the coastal town of Ubatuba when he saw a flying disc that was climbing rapidly just before it exploded into a shower of thousands of fiery fragments. Most of the fragments fell into the sea except for a few that fell on the beach and were collected. Three samples of a very light, dull, grayish metal that were received by the newspaper were turned over to Dr. Olavo Fontes. And um, anyway, uh, you know, this, this sample is pretty interesting. Um, if I recall correctly, it's highly pure magnesium. And some of the isotope ratios are significantly different than sort of the terrestrial normal or the solar system normal. So apparently there is a sort of solar system norm for isotope ratios, just given how the solar system formed in, in sort of common ways. And this sample is, is way off in some respects. So it's highly pure magnesium. The isotope ratio is very curious. You know, and as people who are just more uh, knowledgeable about this analysis than me have said, could human beings have done this in the mid-1950s? Yes. Would it have been expensive and labor-intensive? Yes. Why would we have anybody have done that? Who, who knows? And why would you have exploded it over um, a beach in Brazil? <laughs> who knows, right? So... Each of the questions that you ask just kind of complicates and makes the story weirder and weirder. So just like the Council Bluffs case, this case is also just full of curiosities. Um, again, a sort of arch skeptic could look at that and go, well, we could have done it, so somebody must have done it. But, you know, when you have enough cases like these um, and you take them together, yes, could human beings have done this? Sure. But... It doesn't seem like it doesn't seem normal. It doesn't seem like there were any motives. Um, and you know, there are some cases on the wilder side that I think are above and beyond human capabilities in terms of the performance of the vehicles and um, you know, abrupt maneuvers. Um, Navy personnel have described objects descending from eighty thousand feet to above sea level in like the blink of an eye. And so, these are just cases where we have you know, material in hand. We meaning sort of the wider research community. Materials in hand, it's been studied. There's a strong chain of custody, um, independent witnesses. So there's a couple. Um, there's more, but yeah, those are some of the, the better known ones. So in your mind, is, is your idea kind of, we have all of these stories, we have this evidence, and, and you know, you use this phrase for like cha chain of custody. These things, they're not, there's not an established way to kind of examine these things. It is, is that what you're kind of trying to do with, with Future Folklore to sort of make a, a framework um, for people to um, sort of further this research? Yeah, that would be one. That would be one um, important work area, I think, is, and, you know, Gary Nolan is somebody I've learned a lot from just, you know, with his commentary on this, his, his research on this. Um, and he is, he has called for that. And he said he, he also wants to establish that. But yeah, something like a standardized protocol for not just working on this in the lab, like that that's one element of it, but just all the way from collection to establishing the provenance of material, especially if it's older, it's really hard, right? Um, to maintaining custody of it, getting it to labs, you know, um, maybe for lack of a better term, splitting it up so that you can distribute it to labs who all share a protocol 
who then can return it safely and, you know, return it to the custodian of it. So, you know, it's, I suppose, a bit like if a museum has a cultural artifact that they want analyzed. You know, there is this sensitivity around where does this come from? Are we treating it carefully? There's not very much of it. We have to get it back to its owner or the custodian or whatever. So, yeah, I think having a standardized pipeline for collection, for analysis, and then for, you know, returning it is really important. Because, um, yeah, it would be super easy for somebody to just, you know, I, I, I sometimes joke about pulling up to a town and doing like an antiques roadshow for um, strange materials, right? Um, just, you know, bring out your weirdest metals or materials and tell us a story of why they're weird, right? I mean, you could bring out all kinds of strange things, especially if there's money attached, right? Who knows what people are going to try to pass off. Um, nevertheless, we do need to find a way to gather more of this, and there's just not that much of it yet. I do think there's plenty of it to put a lot more money into the analysis of it, though. So that's kind of where future folklore is right now. Like, there's not a ton of this material, but there's enough to do a lot more work, and we at least I at least want to see that gap closed more than it is now. So I would love to see just the research ecosystem ecosystem of contributors and and folks who want to help, I want to see that expanded by a ton. Um, I'd love to be able to onboard more and more material scientists and more labs and um, <clears throat> and that'll go, I think, a long way toward further destigmatizing this. And um, so yeah, one one thing that I would love to do is help with that pipeline. Another thing would be to just fund a lot of hopefully mostly open source science and analysis on this. Just um, keep keep putting more of the literature out there that can that can be sort of sitting side by side other reputable um, papers. So on this idea of uh, sort of destigmatizing, de um, mm -hmm. NASA has sort of gotten involved in, with with this stuff. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what they're kind of up to and you know, I know we touched upon the, the Galileo projects, but sort of how do you feel this is going to affect the sort of like more mainstream view of someone who's not really paying attention to this kind of stuff? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm glad to see that that working group formed in NASA. Um, as I understand it, Bill Nelson, the NASA administrator, has been very public and supportive of, of this this research area. And so I'm not surprised to see NASA get involved. Um, you know, they're they're understandably pretty careful in what they say they're doing and sort of hedging, you know, any kind of conclusions that would lean in the direction of aliens or <laughs> whatever the case may be. But um, I'm just glad they're entering in. You know, I think at this point they're mostly. Uh, trying to design a project, they're trying to identify the best data sources and maybe analysis techniques, um, which is a great first step. So yeah, they seem to be taking this very seriously. If you look at their press releases or if you look at their commentary around it, they're taking it seriously. They're not sort of joking around about it and um, it's promising. I think they have probably some of the best you know, imagery data out there. So yeah, it's super exciting and it's just another one of these big institutional players entering into the into the fray. So 
you know, New York Times and Harvard and folks at Stanford and NASA. It's, it's enough at least to, for people to go, oh, hmm, you know, maybe I should look into this too. And that's, that's a win to me. And there's organizations like SETI, which have been around for a while, and they have been collecting data and information in a very particular kind of way. How do you think um, things are going to look as sort of our technology changes and how we think about collecting data? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've loved following SETI's work. Um, I think, if anything, the whole UAP, UFO topic should expand the search parameters, right? I mean, there are certain search parameters that have been the gold standard for quite a while in SETI work. Um, you know, most of it is sort of the electromagnetic spectrum, right? Trying to narrow that down or figure out what kind of signals might make sense university universally. Um, but, you know, I, I think we always have to keep an open mind about what non-human life might be like. And, you know, I, one, one of the most fascinating questions and really probably the heart and soul of what drives me to <clears throat> make all kinds of pivots to invest more time and energy and resources into this whole um, project is, is questions like what would non-human life look like? And especially how would we even detect it if it was much more highly advanced than human life? Um, that's something I think about a lot. You know, the, there's the proverbial um, story about how ants would detect human life. Um, and in this whole community, that, that, that example is trotted out quite a bit. But I think for a reason, it really, it really makes you think, you know, do ants even have the capacity to conceive of more advanced life? Um, what does that look like in their experience? Um, is it just seen as a sort of environmental threat? Do they, do they perceive other minds? Right? All these kind of questions that might sort of verge into the absurd, but um, I don't see why we can't ask the same thing about humans vis-a-vis -vis much more highly advanced, more intelligent life. Um, it might be like a very non-trivial thing to detect that kind of life. You know, what if, what if there's life that's, continue to complexify and you know, quote-unquote advance in a sort of linear way um, a million years beyond humans, right? They, they might be as advanced, as more advanced um, than us as, as we are with ants, you know, as, as the thinking goes. So, um, yeah, one of my big questions is what does SETI look like when you really sort of blow it up and, and, and think big like that? John Longberg is a he was Carl Sagan's longtime artistic collaborator, and he's somebody that I've been reading a lot lately. He's brought in aesthetics into the conversation about SETI. Like, might there be sort of principles of symmetry, like the Fibonacci sequence or the, or the golden ratio? Might those be like universal aesthetic words, you know, conceptual words in a sense? that much more highly advanced life might use to communicate with us. You know? Anyway, I, I could go on about that, but <laughs> I'm, I'm glad about how the UFO topic might sort of expand the, the search parameters. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up the idea of aesthetics. You know, I was looking through your, your tweets and you told this story about uh, Gregory uh, Bateson. 
um, mm-hmm. presenting a dead lobster to his students and doing kind of a thought <laughs> yeah. experiment of trying to get them to explain how, how could you sort of reason that this was once a living creature if you had never sort of seen a, a lobster um, before. Um, and I just think it, you know, this whole question of trying to conceive of these things that are, we haven't been sort of, um, we, you know, it's, it's like you can be looking at something and not know what it is mm-hmm. and how, how do you get around that puzzle? Um, so I do think that, that the role of aesthetics is an interesting tool to kind of, um, use to think about these things. Yeah. It's, I love that story. It's, uh, I've only seen it told on a, a really brief vignette, but yeah, he, he apparently put a dead lobster in front of his students and said, you know, if you were <clears throat> hypothetically from a different planet, how might you recognize that this was, well, yeah, once a creature? And he says <clears throat> virtually every time they appealed to aesthetics of things like, um, there seems to be symmetry. You know, this creature looks the same on the left as, as on the right if you split it down the middle. Um, parts of it are sort of symmetrical uh, with itself on one side. Like the, there might be legs that go from smaller to bigger down to smaller again. Um, and he found that, yeah, they were all finding ways to relate to this creature, you know, sort of putting themselves beside themselves for a minute. Um, they were relating to this creature through mutual patterns. And I think that's kind of what Gregory Bateson means in large part by aesthetics is patterns which connect living things to other living things or which interconnect living systems. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And yeah, so when I think of SETI, search for, you know, um, extraterrestrial life, non-human life, I think there's there's so many other avenues that one could go, um, especially if maybe technology is not a common meaningful language. You know, if, if the tech gap is so vast between humans and other life forms, you know, if we don't encounter life that happens to be at just our, you know, little blip on the timeline of life development, if we don't happen to encounter life that's more or less right where we are, you know, in this hundred or so years of tech development and science and everything, um, technology might not be a very meaningful language. You know, we might not understand craft or even see it as craft for instance if, if it shows up uh so there yeah there might be all kinds of other search parameters and yeah you probably can tell that this is what <laughs> this is what really uh gets me super curious and you know future folklore is is one way to try to contribute to finding that out maybe it's happening maybe and you know for me even if i, I can sleep well at night knowing that even if this whole topic ends up not leading to much of anything, even if it's really is a combination of misattributions, things in the atmosphere, weather phenomena that we don't know about yet, on and on and on. Even if that's the case, I don't think it is. <clears throat> but even if so, I think the inquiry will be useful. I think it's going to prompt all kinds of questions that we wouldn't have prompted had we not gone down this road. Um, and it might inspire technology simply because of the imagination that it generates trying to decipher what in the world these liquid metals <laughs> might have been doing in a propulsion device or something, right? Like if, if that's what ends up happening, fine. It was worth it. It was, it's worth it to me. Yeah. I think, um, 
really kind of pushing the the sort of cognitive possibilities. Um, I, I came across an idea uh, not too long ago speculating that there could be intelligent life that's microscopic. And mm-hmm. I thought that was an interesting sort of take on things that I, I hadn't thought of before. And I feel like there are certain tropes in representing alien life. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if if you've come across any sort of interesting ideas um, in either books or, or films or any kind of writing about sort of what what intelligent life or just alien life could sort of be. Yeah. I mean, I, I love like first contact books because it wrestles with a lot of these same questions about how do we even recognize life that's radically different from us. And yeah, I may have come across that same theory too. Maybe the transcension hypothesis was one name that I've seen. Um, I've only read, maybe a little abstract or synopsis of it, but yeah, the, the idea that <clears throat> maybe the more advanced a life form gets, the more it will try to retreat into the subatomic world. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Um, that's funny. I just, I just finished um, Picard season two last night and it's interesting to see how there's kind of a, an inverse correlation with a sci-fi franchise's budget to the, differentiation of alien life that's portrayed in in the franchise right so you know star trek's aliens are kind of confined by costume budgeting and makeup budgeting (laughs) so yeah it's often in the written you know in the written and the novel world that you encounter a little bit more exotic kinds of life or you know more recent cgi stuff um i mean i always loved even growing up i probably can remember some episodes of like star trek where the life was so different that it couldn't even really be pictured or it was this like crystalline life or plasma life and i think it was always you know even even when i was younger it was stories like that that really intrigued me the most and that's also where i could tell um the makers of like star trek had the hardest time sustaining you know because he the temptation, of course, is always to sort of collapse those really exotic life forms into human attributes. And like, how do you sustain the otherness of these alien life forms in a way that's not just how they appear, not just the visuals, but like their behavior, their their motives. And I think that's the real trick. Um, yeah, that's a good question. It, I, I'm always in the market for first contact novels, so... I'm all ears. <laughs> Good to know. Yeah. Uh, I was curious uh, how how you think um, the development of AI is going to sort of influence our, our thoughts on this sort of entire field or um, in particular, I don't know if you've had a chance to play around with the latest release of uh, OpenAI through chat GPT. I have. I have. Yeah. Um, hmm. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very much like a new student to the AI world. I mean, I haven't studied it formally and, you know, I'm, I'm sort of caught up in the enthusiasm over it. Like, like a lot of people, um, there, I know that machine learning AI has been involved in novel material creation. Um, 
So I don't think I could cite the source off the top of my head, but you know, researchers are uh, creating and, and possibly releasing databases of you know, just zillions of, of possible materials, you know, some of which, have, of course, have never been created. But So I think mining those could be interesting and, and maybe taking, you know, taking like the, uh, <clears throat> the Council Bluffs material, for instance. This, uh, this material that's, in terms of metal composition, fairly mundane, but, you know, the, the ratios are known. And the sort of mixture, the ratio of the, the mixture is, is known. You know, the, the inhomogeneity, the incompletely mixed um, aspect of it is known. So maybe taking that and comparing it with databases of these, you know, possible materials that um, AI has helped to, to sort of conceive of. That could be interesting, right? Um, so yeah, that's, that's one area, like in terms of future folklore's focus on the material side of things. Um, I know that some of the imaging projects, like the Galileo project, are going to be using AI to screen out you know, mundane things like birds and planes and, I don't know, maybe even meteorites and satellites. and So that, that definitely is going to um, help with their filtering. So yeah, th those are two areas where I think there's some promise. Um, it's worth a try, right? I don't, I don't know that it's going to lead anywhere yet. You know, you might actually have to try to recreate this thing. You know, create a a generator, create a propulsion device that tries to mix these metals together and simply just see what happens, right? <laughs> um, but I think it'll be a, a super important um, companion, though, and it might help reduce a lot of the uh, sort of search space, right? And for the Future Folklore Project, um, do you have any plans on sort of releasing an NFT or anything like that? You've got a pretty cool um, picture uh, on Twitter that's kind of pixelated. It reminds me of like a kind of 1990s video mm -hmm. game or something like that. Yeah, there's just a brilliant Danish artist who's um, been working on some uh, some animated pieces that will will sell together. Uh, as tokens to support some of the some of the early analysis funding that we're hoping to do. So yeah, he's he's terrific. Um, he'll be on the homepage. You can go look at his portfolio and please support him. Um, yeah, it's it's a fun. The reason I was drawn to to this artist is, um, yeah, his his pieces. Some of his pieces are done in the abandonware style. I guess it's called like where you're, I guess, using software that's not supported anymore that's you know only usable on on obsolete uh hardware and i thought that really captures the spirit of this whole subject well because you know he is a very modern artist and there there are sort of modern elements to his his work and yet you do have this nostalgia when you look at them it's like oh that reminds me of you know a game i played in the, the late 80s or early 90s or something right so um yeah, I'm I'm really excited about these pieces. We're going to be patterning after uh, patterning them after um, some of these well-known cases that I brought up. So each piece will have little hints of um, the origin and the story. And yeah, I'm excited. It's uh, it's one small step, but an important step, I think. And I really want future folklore to lead with um, 
this open source science funding. Now, I think there'll be a time and a place for uh, funding groups of researchers to just tinker, you know, sort of a national lab style, just here's enough funding to tinker. Here's, you know, you have a lot of discretion. See if you can figure out what in the world this material would have been used for. There'll be a time for that, but I really want us to lead with being very generous toward um, open source science. That's awesome. I'll be sure to uh, link uh, all the pertinent information below so people can go check out that artwork because it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, thank you. And, um, you know, I feel like there's so many different sort of people that are interested in this topic and there's different angles to kind of examine it from. I was wondering if you could talk mm-hmm. a bit about sort of like the religious sort of angle, which I feel like it, it can get intertwined with some of these ideas. Yeah, sure. One more thing I'll just mention about the, the whole token idea is um, something that I'm trying to learn a lot about right now is just how governance tokens can work well in, I guess, bear market conditions, right, where the sale of governance tokens isn't also like an automatic you know, multi-year funding project, but it's it's purely for governance. So that's one more thing I'll throw in there. Um, you know, the art the art side, I think, will be a really terrific statement, and the pieces will stand alone on their own as just terrific pieces, I think, and will help fund projects. But longer term, you know, as for the project, I, I we're tracking toward a DAO, right? And so, anyway, just wanted to mention that as an ongoing conversation that I'm having with with myself and with uh, others who are who are helping out um, yeah the religious angle <laughs> um, well I think back again on what <clears throat> Jeffrey Kripal said was to study the UFO phenomenon is to study pretty much everything <laughs> and you know when you sort of open the aperture to this whole field you're gonna you're gonna let in some things that might be weird, might be uncomfortable. Um, so I think for the sake of science, it's okay to bracket off part of this overall phenomenon and say like we just want to know like what this metal is made out of. Like are the isotope ratios normal or not? What is the material the elemental composition? Fine, you can sort of bracket that off. But I you know I do really want to respect the sort of wider narratives and experiences surrounding the the humans who have encountered these objects um you know i'll just mention now that part of the part of the legislation that is already in effect that that stood up this ufo research office you know congress mandated this that their ufo research office that's sort of housed in the intelligence and defense world is mandated to study the health effects of these objects on human beings. Um, that's incredible to me. You know, they're also tasked to study the material elements, but they're also meant to study the health effects. And there are all kinds of other effects that people have reported when coming into close contact with these objects. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's not surprising that over the decades that people have been reporting these that, um, you know, the religious angle has been taken. Um, you know, it, it kind of depends on how you conceive of religion, I guess. And, you know, I'll, I'll say more down the road in coming months, I guess, about my own background because um, I've worked very, very deeply in the 
religious and spiritual care world. So, you know, these questions are live questions for me every day. But, you know, if you think of religion very broadly as something that transcends human limitations, you know, people have often seen the possibility even of hyper-advanced alien life as being a source of transcendence. You know, I think, was it Reagan who said in uh, maybe a UN address that if there was an external threat to the nations of the earth, maybe that would finally unite us, right? That is a sort of religious statement, right? It's saying our only hope is if something above and beyond this world, this human world, our only hope is out there, you know? Um, Yeah, and of course, over the years, there have been new religious movements that have emerged surrounding what people have said were their encounters. And, you know, it's not at all unlike revelatory events that have sparked major religions as we as we know them today um something from above and beyond ordinary human experience sort of invades and um you know it comes with a message and (laughs) so you know when you sort of widen the aperture again to any accounts of non-human intelligent life in a sense that's what that's what religions are right they are human responses to alleged encounters with hyper, hyper, hyper advanced non-human life forms. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I would really recommend somebody like Diana Pasolka. She's a religious studies professor also, um, is a colleague with Jeff Kripal, not at the same university, but they work closely together. She wrote a book called American Cosmic, which is absolutely wonderful, brilliant book. <clears throat> and she, she is um, one of the top few researchers into this sort of um, this relationship between the UFO phenomenon and religion, sort of comparing and contrasting them. Um, at the same time, I, and this is another thing that Jeffrey Kripal has said, he was interviewed by Rice University, <clears throat> sort of their news and media department, and they came to him and said, how does a professor of religion come to be an expert on UFOs? They're not topics one would immediately associate. And he responded and said, well, no one is an expert here. No one. That's the first thing to know. (laughs) So, you know, I think the fact that religious studies people are interested in this and are seeing the similar patterns between religions and the possibility of being visited by other life forms, it's a good sign. I mean, I think this is really an all hands on deck kind of research question. I mean, it's a, it's a fundamental human question. Philosophers should get on board. Um, technology people should, um, should get on board. Um, you name it, you know, I'll pause there. I, I can go on, but <laughs> yeah, no, that, that was great. I think it's, it's a really interesting sort of lens to uh, think about things. Um, mm-hmm. and it, it allows for, I think sort of from my perspective, um, what this is all about is sort of it's it's inquiring about things and it's for a long time it seems that people have been shut off to inquiring about certain things because they Mm -hmm. hear oh it's it's this thing or it's that therefore it's not worth my time um or it's not important and i i feel like that that have in sort of modern times that seems to be common and, and again, this is from my perspective, but when you bring up religion, 
there's there's certain groups of people um, that will just automatically shut shut off um, because they hear that that word or or they hear that it's associated in a certain way when really it's you know it's got a long history and tradition and there's lots of interesting ideas in there and maybe sort of what this is about is sort of being a little more open to to ideas and and seeing where they they go yeah totally and i'll just go back to gregory bateson again um his last book that was published actually after he died his his daughter uh, mary catherine bateson um finished it published it um together i guess called um angel's fear towards an epistemology of the sacred super interesting somewhat esoteric obscure book but um he was he was um fascinated by the religious idea of the sacred and how in any really in any communicative system in any living system you have to keep secrets um what what's the genetic barrier the the wiseman barrier not a geneticist but anyway it's it's the barrier that i guess um, prevents the passing on of all the uh, acquired characteristics of a previous generation to the next one. You know, so he talks about if <clears throat> if the the parent has a really strong bicep, that strong bicep that they <clears throat> develop through strength training and all that is not passed on to the child. And the reason why that's important is because if every acquired character characteristic was passed on you would actually lose the flexibility to adapt in different ways. You know, maybe the next generation doesn't need that kind of strength. Maybe it needs a different kind of strength. Maybe it's prevented from doing certain things with a really strong bicep or whatever. Uh, anyway, that that's one example of <clears throat> the necessity of secrecy in a living system. You know, nobody decides to keep that secret. It's just it's built into the sort of quote unquote the mind of the genetics, as he would maybe talk about it. Uh, he was fascinated though by how. In religious systems, you have a lot of secrecy. Uh, Rutledge just published a whole book on secrecy and religion, and um, you know he he saw he saw religion as a really really crucial epistemological map on which to <clears throat> um, make all kinds of other inquiries. And you know, for me, that is a really close analog to the questions that continue to really propel me you know because in religions you have all kinds of maps that are already sort of drawn about how humans might respond to the presence of hyper advanced life and so you know even if somebody's coming at this and they're secular they're you know have no interest at all in you know spirituality or a, a real sort of realm above and beyond the material realm um that, that was sort of Gregory Bateson, actually. That, that kind of describes him. He still saw in religions this goldmine of epistemology. So, you know, I think it's, it's relevant for SETI. It's relevant for the search for other life. Um, even if just to sort of look for precedents for how humans have responded to alleged events like this in the past. And it does not mean, by the way, this is not sort of advocating for the ancient aliens hypothesis. <laughs> People might immediately go to the premise of a show like that and go, oh, they just, you know, they reduce everything to aliens. And I think that's the, that's the fault of um, a, lot of this, a lot of this material. It does not mean that you just equate it all. What it does mean is 
we have lots of <clears throat> precedents for how humans have responded to um, what they perceive as, you know, um, beings that are from beyond this world, from other planets, other realms, beings who have, you know, inscrutable technology, on and on and on. And as we're kind of wrapping up here, I was curious um, to know your thoughts on how you think sort of the the development of DAOs are going to affect uh, sort of this line of inquiry or maybe sort of what's what would have been the highlights of sort of jumping into this this world and what are some of the challenges you've faced yeah i'm i'm learning a lot and i i do think that you know i i know that future folklore is not the only um at least dao hopeful <laughs> that is pursuing questions surrounding uaps ufos um and i think others like, like I do, others see the sort of relative openness of DAOs, of, of Web3 technology for enabling distributed research teams to more easily form and to fund. And, um, you know, it's one thing to try to set up a UFO research office in some, like, Ivy League university. Like, that, that sounds really hard. <laughs> and it took somebody like Avi Loeb, for instance, you know, the longest-serving chair of the astronomy department at Harvard to somebody like that to just kind of plow through and I guess do it. But that's not a trivial thing. And so I think generally speaking, DAOs enable, a, you know, a, a, a more disparate team to form around a common interest and can enable coordination, can enable fundraising, decision-making, you know, all the things that I guess DAOs are supposed to be good at. Um, I think, like I said a, a bit ago, one of the challenges is just there's not as much buying action um, with governance tokens, and you know, obviously, if there's <clears throat> speculations and pumping and dumping, that's you know, that's working at cross purposes, I guess, with the purpose of a governance token. And yet, I know for a lot of DAOs who launched before you know November of last year, it was a huge source of initial funding. And I just don't know that that's the case anymore. So I don't know. For me personally, I'm sort of in a watchful mode right now. And, um, you know, I, I'm looking for more and more insight around launching a, a token like that. I've, I've heard from many who have been sort of chastened by the market conditions of the last year. Um, just expressing their hesitations about launching a governance token too soon. So, you know, it's easy to feel kind of trapped. When do you launch it? Are you really a DAO until you have a token, right? Um, do you sort of split off into working groups and, you know, make decisions within those groups without the input of, of the whole? So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm watching really closely. A lot of my heroes are probably the heroes of a lot of others in the DSI world, <clears throat> folks that... Molecule, folks at VitaDAO, LabDAO, others. So working hard on learning, but also you know feeling the feeling the sort of temptation to get frozen, right? <laughs> right. Those are some uh, complicated questions uh, to be resolved, but I'm sure uh, you're up for the challenge. It's been really great talking to you. I was wondering, what's the best place for people to go to stay up to date with everything you're you're working on? 
you know, probably Twitter is the easiest. It's just future underscore folklore. That's our handle. Um, you know, easily searchable probably through Twitter. Um, yeah, that's where our homepage is linked and you can DM me there. Our email address is, is on the webpage, futurefolklore.tech. So, uh, yeah, please reach out. I would love to find more uh, collaborators, more folks who are not just passionate about this, but even just curious, even mildly curious. I'll take that. <laughs> and who might just want to dive in and uh, see what we can make of this. All right. It's been great.